0: Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator from University of Illinois Extension in Macomb, Illinois, and I am joined joined today by our uh, co-host here, Ken Johnson, hort educator in Jacksonville. Hello, Ken.
1: Hello, Chris.
0: And uh, we are without Katie today, but uh, we do have a fantastic guest uh, for the listeners. We are joined by our colleague, horticulture educator Bruce Black. Bruce, good morning to you
2: good morning chris good morning ken thanks for having me
0: good morning Well, well we're really happy to have you here and bruce where are you um dialing in from on the podcast
2: i'm coming to you from a sunny dixon illinois which is in northwest illinois um and just for the folks out there um it is an hour east of the quad cities two hours west of Chicago and an hour south of Rockford.
0: And so, Bruce, I, I know a little bit about your background. Um, you did go to school in a place um, that, you know, is very close to Illinois. I actually visited the campus there, Iowa State University, and it was delightful. But I, we always ask folks that come onto the show, it's your first time, can you give us a little bit of your background? You know, folks are we're always kind of curious about why horticulture? Why gardening? What is the what was the inspiration for you to pick the career that you have?
2: Uh, certainly. So um, I was um, born in Iowa, um, Cedar Rapids area, um, and did go to Iowa State, got my bachelor's and my master's there, both in horticulture, and my master's was also in professional agriculture. Um, And I really got started with horticulture when I was a little kid. Um, My grandparents and my mom always had a garden, and so my thing growing up was growing tomatoes. Um, There are some pictures that are floating around that are unflattering in family albums of me uh, standing next to tomato plants that are taller than I was with tomatoes about the size of my head. So it was it was one of those experiences that I always spent time in, in a garden um, from when I was a wee kid all the way up to um, high school and when I graduated high school, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, so I went out and I tried some of the business-type jobs that are out there and realized that they weren't for me. And I had a friend who was at Iowa State who said, why don't you go back to school? You've always wanted to go back and get more of an education, and he goes, there there are a lot of great opportunities here that you could um, – participate in. And um, so I I submitted my application and got contacted by an advisor who um, was in the Ag Department. And he put me in four different classes because I didn't know what I wanted to major in. Um, All of them were in different areas of Ag. And one of them was the intro to horticulture class, and because of the amazing people at Iowa State in the horticulture, horticulture department, um, and the, the material, I just fell in love, and uh, I had one of the best advisors around, um, so I'm going to give her a little shout out here, uh, Barb Clausen, who uh brought me out of my introverted shell she's like i see that horticulture potential in you and so i'm gonna help you bring that out and told me to join the hort club and i lived my best horticulture life and fell in love with it um and how i really got into teaching horticulture um I had always wanted to become a teacher. I used to think uh, high school science, uh, either astronomy or geology or chemistry, and I had an opportunity to teach plant um, plant propagation as an undergraduate as a teaching assistant. Um, and so I got the got the position, and I helped my major professor, and he goes, well, what are you going to do after you um, graduate? Because I was coming up on graduation, and I said, well, I'm not sure, but I really like extension, and I like the thought of teaching. And he goes, well, you need a master's degree for that. And uh, he goes, I actually have an opportunity with you to utilize your fruit and vegetable background Um, in a project with the Master Gardener group. And uh, so I went in and interviewed for the grad school position and um, did all the requirements, took the test and uh, was accepted. Um, And that's how I really got started teaching Um, horticulture was that opportunity at being a teacher's assistant for plant propagation and then my project of teaching youth in a community garden with master gardeners. And so that's a little bit about my background and I've been with Illinois Extension for the last five years um, and I've loved it ever since.
0: There's something about intro to horticulture isn't there i mean uh that's kind of where i got the bug too i wasn't quite sure what to do and then i learned you can take a cutting from a plant and you can stick it in some soil and you can grow another plant and i was just like you you have me at oxen you know that's (laughs) that's that's beautiful and and amazing so and along those lines bruce you have been doing some webinars about plant propagation that have been fairly popular on our YouTube channels. And um, I believe the, the title is, and you can correct me here if I'm wrong, uh, is, is micropropagation. So um, you know, this has been a pretty popular one, and we'll leave a link in the show notes to this webinar. But can you just explain to us briefly what, what are we talking about with micropropagation?
2: Sure. Um, so micropropagation is one of those topics that combines a lot of loves for me. So I love being a scientist, I love making new plants, and I love the feeling of where I get to be a quote unquote mad scientist. So micropropagation is growing plants in vitro, which means you're growing them in a glass container in a tissue culture medium. And so that medium is very similar to a jello or jelly like substance. It is um, an auger based gelatin that has nutrients, sugars, all of the things that the plants would need to begin absorbing to start rooting and producing new shoots. Um, and one of the things that really made me want to do this webinar is I always get questions about how can I do micropropagation? I hear people doing micropropagation but don't you need a lab for that? And the answer is a lab is helpful but there was a experiment that was done and some professors and I believe it was um, a North Dakota State University um, regional publication. They have a recipe there for doing at home tissue culture. And that's the same tissue culture that I got to learn when I was um, helping to teach the propagation class. And so we did a version of it. Um, we didn't do the full at-home version, but the at-home version, instead of using an autoclave, um, like you would do in a lab, you're doing with a pressure cooker, um, which can be just be a standard um, kitchen pressure, cook- pressure cooker. Um, you're also utilizing food safe containers. Um, So the recipe and what I discuss in the video is using baby food jars because they are um, food safe containers that can handle the pressure um, and they're easy to seal up. Um, So you use that um, along with making the media on a stovetop or a cooktop and once you get that sterilized in a pressure cooker. You use um, rubbing alcohol to sterilize your um, baby food containers and you put those in the refrigerator to set up and then you take the pieces of plants that you want to grow into the baby food media in tissue culture and you then seal those up, let those sit under a grow light and they start to produce roots and shoots. Now the success rate for doing tissue culture um, is going to depend on how what precautions you take. So since we are doing a sealed container that has the tissue culture medium in the bottom with lots of sugar, water, and nutrients, those are also the same things that bacteria and fungus are going to want to latch onto and grow. So bacteria and fungus is going to be that nemesis that you have when you do tissue culture. So there are some um, things that you can do um, to mitigate that. Um, and I discussed those in the the webinar as long as as well as the gardener's Corner um, articles that I wrote about tissue culture. And one of those, and it's it's a very, easy thing to do is when you take the cap off you're taking it off as little time as possible and you're holding your breath while you have it off.
0: I remember that process in intro to botany and if anyone wants a gateway plant to practice tissue culture mine was coleus. I loved playing around with little cuttings of coleus and different agar solutions and oh that was that was a blast.
2: It, it it always is, and uh, another gateway uh, plant to use is African violet leaves. Um, just taking small cuttings of those, um, and they root fairly easy. And the other thing that I love about uh, micropropagation is that... Usually when we think plant propagation, we're taking cuttings that are maybe inches long or uh, six inches long. But in micropropagation, this is the only form of propagation where if there was a apocalyptic event and a plant, a plant species or a couple of plant species were wiped out, but all we could find were a couple of cells of those plant species. We could use tissue culture to regrow that species.
0: Again, this propagation thing with plants, folks, if you don't know this yet, this is fascinating. It's gonna get you hooked on, on horticulture gardening. Another thing though, that you do work on, and I, I think, is this correct? A little bit of your background was in community gardens, correct, with the Master Gardeners?
2: Yes, so that was my grad school project, was working in a community garden teaching youth alongside the Iowa Master Gardeners.
0: And, and you and, and Ken also helped lead our teams here at Extension in an effort to, to help folks that might want to start a community garden. And with, you know, you mentioned apocalypse and micropropagation, well, we're kind of in a in, in sort of a global, global event. Um, where there's a lot of people who want to start growing vegetables and uh, you know we're starting to get a lot of questions now about people that want to start a community garden and actually we had one specifically from Donald he's in McDonough County he wants to know where should he start what does he need to know about starting a community garden he wants to be part of his neighborhood um, then open it up to folks in his season a, a small rural Illinois town so uh, Bruce uh, or Ken also I know you both worked on this project you know what what are some tips for Donald
2: well uh, Ken if you don't mind I'll go ahead and start and you can um, chime in when you uh, have something um, Donald, this is a great question, and it's one that you are not alone in asking. This has become that popular question, as Chris said. And um, for a true community garden, um, I've actually put together a webinar series, and I can have Chris put that in the the notes, um, or a webinar, excuse me. Um, and I can have Chris put that in the the notes um, for the full how to plan and manage a community garden presentation. A quick summary is going to be the best place to start is with a plan, a desire, and a mission. So you've got the desire to start that neighborhood community garden. The plan you need to think about um, and when we, when we start thinking about planning community gardens, we may not start with plan A or B or C. We might actually start with plan M or Q because we go through those processes. The desire that you want to, um, the desire or the need to fill is are you sh- looking to do a garden for food shortage Uh, poverty, beautification, um, education, and look to some of those community partners once you start to address this need. So if you're going to do a garden to address food shortage, you might want to look at local garden centers or um, government agencies, uh, health professionals, to get their input on the local county or even um, city ordinances that you might need help with in starting a community garden. Because the one thing you don't want to do is to get the garden planned out, planted, and then find out that um, there's a local ordinance um, that might interfere with the garden. Um, So just having that conversation with um, your local folks is always helpful. And the other thing to think about is if this is going to be on somebody's private property, um, who's going to carry the insurance if you're having other folks um, coming to work on the garden? I know it's one of those things that we don't want to think about, but if somebody's working in the garden and um, sprains their ankle, um, we have to face the fact that we we are in one of those societies where um, there are legal issues that do come up. Um, so that's just one thing to think about. Um, but also reaching out to some of those community agencies, um, they might be willing to help donate um, to um, tools or seeds or plants or starts. Um, the other thing to think about is when you put together a community garden, how close is your water supply? Um, that was something that I ran into with my project. um, Our water supply was on the other side of the property, Um, so we had to run quite a few hundreds of feet of hose to uh, get water to our garden. So always think about location. Uh, You want to limit the amount of weeds or grass that you might have. Um, So usually starting with removing of sod um, and rototilling and allowing that um, area to kind of um, get reworked for a garden. Adding compost and organic matter, doing a soil test, and then um, the other type But the other thing you want to think about with your community garden is how are you going to organize the community garden? Is this going to be um, an allotment or a plot garden where each participant gets a certain area of the garden to work um, and they make a minuscule maybe five dollar donation to have that area of the garden. Um, and usually we always just say a five dollar donation to work that area. Um, community gardens that I've worked with in the past have an opportunity for the community gar- or for those participants to after they've cleaned up get that $5 back at the end of the year or put that $5 down for reservation of a next plot, a plot next year. The other thing to think about is um, if you're doing this as a neighborhood garden, are the folks in your neighborhood going to um, come and work in the garden? And then they're going to be able to divide the produce among those that have worked or those that um, need the uh, the produce in your garden. And so just kind of formulating that uh, plan that you've got on how you want this to look at. Um And with that, I'm going to pause and see if Ken wants to jump in here.
1: I'd say everything Bruce has mentioned, I think one of the big things issues people run into in community gardens is is the labor thing. Everybody, you know, when you first start off, everybody's all excited about it. And then kind of just with your typical backyard garden too, as the season drags on, that enthusiasm kind of wanes a little bit And, and kind of that participation, that labor. Um, sometimes be be an issue you may end up with you know one or two people end up doing all the work um, so making sure you've got people that are committed and 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 participating is an important thing too um and we'll say that as a, kind of as a horticulture team for for U of I Extension we put together a community garden webinar series um kind of goes through the the nuts and bolts kind of geared more towards people who would be managing a community garden I'm kind of talking about some of the different considerations um, you need to come up with or, or to think about um, when I guess designing or, or building a community garden um, and what are some of the different things that people that are growing in there, what are they gonna be looking at? So um, you kind of how to lay out a garden, um, different types of vegetables, talk about seed starting, um, hardening off, just kind of general plant care that, If you have people that are gardening for the first time, may not be familiar with so you can help them with that. Um, We're talking about kind of gardening safely, um, harvesting food, stuff like that. It's kind of a little more of the nuts and bolts on how kind of a community garden would work from more of that that managerial perspective. And we can put that link to that series in the, the show notes as well. Well, thank you ken and bruce uh
0: very much that's a lot of information and and as they mentioned we will have more resources for donald and anybody listening that would be interested in starting a community garden so we do have some information for you for folks our next question comes from letha Leitha's letha's in mcdonough county uh she is starting the garden she is planting cucumbers and there is something that is eating her seeds before they even sprout in the little mound that she's planted them in so no germination she dug up the hill and found just the remains of the seed covering so bruce you have any ideas what might be happening here
2: well i'll throw on my detective cap and uh i will say that The garden seeds are probably getting eaten by um, local wildlife depending on when Letha um, dug up her hills, um, if she's seen any um, underground tunnels or if um, the hill was disturbed on top of the soil. Um, those garden seeds could have commonly been eaten by mice. Um, seedlings can also be damaged by voles, chipmunks, rabbits, squirrels. Um, and usually this is where you got to throw in that detective hat and to look for those wildlife clues. Um, so looking for um, tunnels, some of the larger... Um, animals like squirrels may leave more obvious signs of chewing. um, But in most cases, um, those small animals are going to be either active early morning or late in the evening. So it might be one of those opportunities to either take a late stroll through the garden or take an early morning stroll through the garden and just see what might be present in the garden. And
0: then our, our next question comes from uh, Ken's Neck of the Woods. This is John in Morgan County and he has five white oak trees. They're about 30 to 35 foot tall. Uh, he's saying about half to two-thirds of the leaves in the middle of the, the uh, sounds like a line of trees. So these middle two trees are dying or they've shriveled up. Uh, a third of the leaves on the bottom are dying. So he just wants to know, you know, there's more growth that seems to be coming out, new growth. Uh, Ken, have you been seeing stuff like this? Any thoughts? Yes,
1: yeah, so this sounds like it may be in Thrac notes, so... Um, anthracnose is a, a foliar disease we get on, on trees and a lot of other plants. Um, we're seeing that quite a bit this year because the spring has been rather cool and moist, uh, which is perfect conditions for anthracnose. Uh, so I know here in Jacksonville, at least um, kind of in neighborhoods around where I live, pretty much all of the sycamore trees have no leaves on them because of anthracnose. Um, going on on walks with the kids around the neighborhood, Um you know, a lot of the maple trees um, have a lot of leaf sp- anthracnose leaf spots on them. Um, so I would suspect, um, he's got some some anthracnose on there um, this disease isn't necessarily deadly um, it just may cause some defoliation um, but on mature established trees um, they're going to have enough reserves they will send out a new flush of growth um, and they should be fine you know if these are if these trees were getting defoliated repeatedly year after year after year then you have to be concerned about it but kind of if this is the only year it's happened I wouldn't really be worried about it and there's really not much you can do with it um, <clears throat> especially with large mature trees, anything you would spray or could spray, you're not gonna get that up in the top of the canopy um, to, to kind of protect those leaves. This usually starts at the bottom. Um, it kind of works its way up that, that bottom canopy is gonna be a lot more moist. Um, it's gonna be shaded so it doesn't dry off as fast. So it just kind of works its way up the tree. Now that it, we're starting to warm up, um, maybe not getting much drier but we're starting to warm up and as things dry out um, stuff should probably start going away and then those trees will send out that new flush of growth and and everything will be good again.
0: And coming up next week we're actually going to have a plant pathologist on Travis Cleveland. He specializes in tree diseases and so I think we're gonna have a lot of questions based on our spring for Travis. Our Final question of the show here is from Reba. Reba's in Scott County. She's growing radishes. She's seeing these little holes starting to form on the leaves. Uh, Bruce, what do you think is going on with these radishes? What can she do to protect them?
2: All right. Well, Reba, this is a great question. And um, I think what you might actually have are some flea beetles. Um, so flea beetles are tiny insects that... Um, tend to jump when they're disturbed. So when us gardeners go out and we walk through the garden, we rarely see them. Um, But what we can actually see are those tiny holes that are left in the leaves. Um, And so flea beetles are most damaging in the spring. So it's important to monitor the activity as soon as you have seedlings starting to emerge. Um, Some ways that we can monitor our gardens is to place the yellow sticky cards in our garden to identify what insects we have in our gardens, such as the flea beetles. Um, Looking for that damage, like you've indicated, the holes in the leaves. Um, And one of the things with the flea beetles is if we would start noticing them later in the season, so closer to the summer, it wouldn't be necessary to treat for flea beetles. Um, By summer, crops that have four to five leaves um, are strong enough to survive the feeding damage, Um, and the number of adult flea beetles goes down at this time. Now, you're seeing flea beetles now in your garden, as we're still in spring. And so if you are planning to plant any of the coal crops, so cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower, or other plants that have edible greens that can be damaged later in the summer, you'll want to monitor to make sure... uh, those flea beetles aren't going after those cold crops as or the edible crops as well. Um, so that's where having those yellow sticky cards will really help. So some things to do to make your garden unwelcoming to pests would be to control the weeds in and around the planting site to limit those food sources. Remove any old crop debris at the end of the season so that there's no protection for those pests in the winter. And then plant your crops a little later in the spring. Plant the crops, um, plants that grow faster in warmer weather are more stable and resistant to flea beetles. Um, But one thing I do have as some sad news for Reba. Um, Radishes are actually one of those favorite crops for flea beetles, Um, and they're usually used as a trap crop for um, gardeners who have a lot of flea beetles, um, because they're very attractive and they do emerge um, so soon in the spring. Um, Some things to keep in mind, is that adult flea beetles will be attracted to the tallest, earliest crops available. So this might be an opportunity for you to um, plant some crops before you plant your radishes, um, that those plants could be um, taller than the radishes so then when you do plant the radishes they're less likely to be moving towards your radishes. Um, Once the beetles are actively feeding on your trap crop then you can spray the trap crop with a labeled pesticide um, to treat flea beetles. And Another thing with all this rain we've been having lately um, there could be a secondary um, pest that is going after the leaves, and that could be slugs. So slugs will produce um, little pitted holes in radishes, and they're not deterred by the peppery varieties either. So if your radishes are a little hot, they're not going to mind. Um One thing to try if you think you might have slugs with all of this warm, uh, well, not warm, wet weather we've been having, um, is put a cup of non-alcoholic beer out near your radishes. And if you do have any slugs, the non-alcoholic beer will attract the slugs to have them go into that cup and then they'll fall into the non-alcoholic beer. And so that's one of the tricks that we use with strawberries. Um, when we have slug problems is put that non-alcoholic beer out there, and uh, it helps to trap those slugs.
1: Um, and another thing for the radishes, I mean, the radishes, depending on how large they are, those are a pretty quick turnaround. Um, so if they're getting pretty close to getting mature. You may not have to worry about it too much. Cause, I mean, a lot of those are 20, 25-day turnaround from when you plant them. I don't know if you mentioned this, Bruce, so if you did, you can just cut this out, Chris. Um, but another thing you can do is, is use a kind of a floating row cover. Since radishes don't need to be pollinated, you can put that floating row cover on over them and kind of prevent stuff from getting onto them as well.
2: I did not, Ken, so that is a great <laughs> tip too.
1: I had some visitors while you were talking.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you all know I don't cut things out of this podcast.
2: Well, it's a good thing Ken and I have yet to make a mistake.
0: Uh, I mean, this has been flawless so far. So our listeners, (laughs) this has been a real treat. So I want to thank you very much, Bruce, for being on the show. Uh, We've learned a lot. Um, so do you have any things? Uh, I, I know you've been doing a series of webinars. I think those have wrapped up, but uh, hey, might as well plug them because you're putting them online still.
2: Yeah, so I'd love to. So for the past uh, seven weeks, I was doing a Growing Horticulture in Northwest Illinois uh, webinar series um, that we did via Skype, and those are all currently on Zoom and have been closed captioned and so those are available at our carol-lee-whiteside extension YouTube channel, which I will have Ken and Chris put a link um, down below for you to access those. Um, And we covered a lot of edible crop um, topics during that, Um, don't kill your tomatoes, so one on tomato diseases, the uh, how to plant a community garden, as I mentioned during Donald's question, drought tolerant annual perennials, that was a flower presentation, Also did um, Big Flavors in Small Spaces, which was about growing fruits in containers. So for those of us that have a lot of patio space and not enough room for a traditional fruit-type garden, um, there's some really interesting cultivars of fruit out there as well. We did a presentation on colorful vegetables, so coming out of that grad school project that I did. Um, We learned the power of the purple carrot, and it's been a hook that I've tried to use in my gardens with children um, during our summer programs. And then the other two presentations that we did were the Northern Berry School, and that was done with um, Candace Hart our state master gardener coordinator and Grant McCarty from the local foods and small farms team all about berries and planting berries so uh, we focus on strawberries blueberries blackberries and raspberries and some things for beginning gardeners on site selection and plant selection, going into management strategies, and pest and disease issues as well. Um, So one of the things I will just let our listeners know, the disease ones on tomatoes and the disease section in Northern Berry School, do not watch those before lunch. Um, It does have a A small chance of ruining your appetite with some of the pictures that we do show.
0: Excellent. Well, we have a ton of resources for our listeners today. So, once again, thank you, Bruce, so so much for being on the show today.
2: It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I uh, look forward to getting the invite back.
0: I think we got a lot more to talk about. So, that will be coming here very soon. And, Ken, thanks again, as always, for being our faithful co-host here on the Good Growing Podcast, and we will be back next week with Ken and Katie and Travis Cleveland. Thank you, Chris. Well, as always, we do appreciate you listening and keep on growing.